This summer, the world must answer one question. Why has no one made a popsicle that gets you high yet? That's right, it's summer, and it's time for you to get your hands on America's new favorite product, Danksicles. 20 milligrams of THC in two great flavors, the latest and greatest innovation from IndiCloud. Is IndiCloud the greatest company to come out of America? Maybe. But what we do know for sure is that IndiCloud is the best way to get dispensary-grade cannabis delivered directly to your door, 100% legally. Yes, they ship legally to all states. No medical card needed. Whether it's vapes as big as your head, flowers you won't find in your mom's garden, or of course, popsicles that get you high as What are you waiting for? Go to indicloud.co slash spring24 and get discreet delivery on top shelf THC products. Head over to indicloud.co slash spring24. That's co, not com, to snag 30% off your first order. Hey everyone, my name is Nikki Young and this is Serial Napper, an international true crime podcast. For the month of July, Serial Napper is hosting a series that I like to call Serial Nightmare, featuring creepy, spooky, and weird as fuck stories. Don't worry to all of you true crime lovers, I'll continue to sprinkle in some true crime stories here and there. So grab a drink, sit back, and relax while we talk about vampires tonight. Not your typical Dracula, Transylvania vampires. Oh no, we're talking about Rhode Island vampires. Vampires of New England. Those who were said to carry diseases and curses that needed to be burned and consumed in order to lift their hold. One of the most documented cases of such vampire is that of Mercy Brown, who lived in Rhode Island in the 1890s. Her story is just one amongst several others as New England vampire panic spread across the area as fast as any disease ever could. We've all heard about the Salem witch trials, right? Well, New England vampire panic would begin a full century later. What we know as tuberculosis was called consumption in these days, and while it was widely known that someone suffering from consumption would display symptoms like a bloody cough, fever, and weight loss, it wasn't well known where it came from or how it spread or how to treat it or even prevent it. Tuberculosis or consumption was by far the world's most deadly infectious disease then and even now. And without the medical knowledge or understanding of such a disease, many New Englanders thought that it was a vampire that could be causing the condition. Tuberculosis was literally called consumption because its symptoms consumed those who had it, but also because it was thought to be caused by the deceased consuming the life of their surviving relatives. Think about it. Tuberculosis is a bacterial disease. It would easily spread amongst family members living in a household as they were all in close contact with one another. So when one family member contracted consumption, died, and was buried, other members of the family were likely to also suffer from contracting the disease as well. 
It was believed that it was the deceased family member acting somewhat like a vampire and consuming the life of their remaining living family from the grave. I mean, if you don't understand science and how diseases work, it's, I guess, as good as any, isn't it? And this is where the Brown family comes in. George Brown was the head of the household, a hardworking farmer who tilled the soil in Rhode Island. Consumption was absolutely ravaging his family. First, his wife, Mary Brown, suffered a horrible death in 1883, followed by the death of his 20-year-old daughter, Mary Olive, who died only six months later. Now, his only son, Edwin Brown, contracted tuberculosis as well, and knowing he couldn't afford to lose his only male descendant, Edwin was sent to Colorado for 18 months to receive an experimental treatment. He would be housed in a hospital specialized in the treatment of consumption, a hospital called a sanatorium. Colorado Springs boasted dry climate and fresh mountain air, which made it the perfect location for these sanatoriums, and so people flocked to the area for treatment. In the 1880s and 1890s, it's estimated that one-third of the people living in Colorado Springs had tuberculosis. Basically, people came for clean air and sunshine, thinking that it might help with the disease. But of course, it didn't. Some people were able to get better on their own, however, most perished. And after spending 18 months trying to get better through that clean air and sunshine and only getting more sick and more weak, Edwin had enough. He missed home, and clearly this treatment wasn't working, so it was time to head back to Rhode Island to be with the rest of his family. Upon his return, he learned that his last remaining sister, Mercy, had also perished from consumption while he was away receiving his treatment. She was only 19 years old and battled the disease for a full year before succumbing to it. The family lived in one house in very close proximity to each other, so it's no wonder that they had all contracted the disease, all except George, who seemed to have avoided it so far. But again, doctors and scientists had no idea how it spread or why it would move so quickly through the Brown family, and so many began to wonder if the Brown family's demise could be the work of a vampire buried six feet under, continuing to consume the two remaining Browns until the whole family was destroyed. George's friends advised him to immediately dig up the graves of his two daughters and his wife. They had to be the source of the disease, sucking the life out of him and Edwin from somewhere between heaven and hell. And because they were tortured souls, now vampires and caught in this dark place, they weren't truly at rest. Something had to be done. Initially, George was reluctant to dig up his family's bodies, but his only remaining child, Edwin, grew closer to death. So, finally, he gave in and agreed. He would allow his friends and neighbors to dig them up, but he refused to be there, and I can imagine why. It's got to be pretty traumatic to see the bodies of your two young daughters and your wife be dug up and basically desecrated. Mary, Mary Olive, and Mercy Brown were all buried in the Chestnut Hill Cemetery, which was a small graveyard located behind the local Baptist church. First, they dug up George's wife, Mary Brown, and as they expected, all they found was bones. Then they dug up Mary Olive Brown, George's eldest daughter. Again, she was so badly decomposed that all that was left of her was bones. 
The last body to be dug up was Mercy Brown, the youngest daughter and the most recent to have died. Mercy had only been buried eight weeks earlier, so she was definitely the freshest of the corpses. Mercy had also died during a cold winter, and at the time of her death, the ground was too frozen to be dug into, so she had actually been kept in a cold crypt for some time. Because of this, her body was actually in pretty good shape. It had been preserved. So the neighbors who opened her coffin, they quickly pointed out that her face appeared to still have some color in it. Her cheeks were flushed. Her hair and her nails had also grown, which made them believe that she had to be a vampire. The vampire that continued to suck the life out of her family so that she may continue to live beyond the grave. When they opened her body up, they discovered that there was still blood in her heart and in her veins, which only confirmed their suspicions. Mercy Brown was a vampire, sucking the life out of her brother Edwin. The neighbors informed George Brown of what they had found, and while even he seemed to believe the vampire theory is truth, not everyone was convinced. The local doctor, Dr. Harold Metcalf, denied the findings to be consistent with a vampire. He tried to calm everyone down, bring them all back to reality by telling them that the state of her body, including her hair growth and nail growth, was completely normal and consistent with how Mercy's body was preserved and how long she had been deceased. But it didn't seem to matter. People were terrified of consumption and the rate at which people were dying. They needed to believe in something that would put the power back into their own hands. They had to destroy Mercy's body, her undead body, according to their beliefs. So they did as one does to a vampire. They built a bonfire of wood and sticks. They cut out Mercy's heart and lungs and basically cremated them on the fire until they were nothing but ash. Then they mixed the ash with water, creating a liquid concoction that they believed would cure Edwin Brown of his ailment. Edwin drank this mixture of his sister's ash of heart and lungs, also believing that this would stop the curse and heal him. Unfortunately, he would die two months later on May 2nd, 1892 of consumption. What remained of Mercy's body without her heart and lungs, completely desecrated, was buried in the cemetery of the Baptist Church, where it remains today. As you can imagine, it's a hot spot for curious tourists. Mercy Brown definitely was not the first to be exhumed and consumed upon suspicion of being a vampire. It happened more frequently than you'd think throughout the centuries. However, Mercy is known as the last New England vampire. The ritual seemed to have died out and faded, eventually as it became clear that it was completely ineffective in curing anything and pretty much based upon total nonsense. But that didn't stop Rhode Island from picking up the nickname as the Vampire Capital of America between 1870 and 1900. My family is getting ready to make a big move across the ocean to a place where English isn't the spoken language. This isn't my first rodeo, so I'm making sure I'm fully prepared by learning the language ahead of time. Sure, I know I can use an app once I get there, but you'd be shocked by how much gets lost in translation. I want to talk like a local, 
which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in True Accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go, and they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factors No Prep, No Mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factors chef-crafted meals that include different nutritional options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Healthy meal planning has never looked so good with Factors Fresh, Never Frozen Meals that are also dietitian approved. No matter how busy you are, Factor can help kickstart and maintain a new healthy routine by making it easy to enjoy nutritious meals on the go. Plus, you'll never get bored eating the same thing every day because they offer 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. We're talking restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, because eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. Personally, I love not having to overthink what I'm going to eat every single day, because that's half the battle, and I don't have to bother with shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. But the best part is, these meals are delicious, with ingredients you can trust. Crush your wellness goals this May. Head to factormeals.com slash napper50 and use code napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code napper50 at factormeals.com slash napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Another famous vampire of the area was Nellie L. Vaughn, who died in 1889 at the age of 19. Nellie passed away on March 31, 1889, after battling a bad case of pneumonia. Initially, her body was buried at her family's farm, likely because the family couldn't afford a space at a public cemetery. But the family was later granted permission to move her body into a plot at Rhode Island Historical Cemetery No. 2, where she still rests to this day. What's sad in this case is that Nellie was never suspected by her family as being a vampire, 
not when she was alive and not in her death. But when it was heard that her body was transferred from the family farm to another plot, rumors began to fly, and they never stopped, especially when Mercy Brown's story became public knowledge. One local university professor who studied vampirism claimed that no vegetation or lesion would grow on Nellie's grave, despite numerous attempts to plant there. But what is even creepier is the inscription written on the bottom of Nellie's tombstone, which reads, I am waiting and watching for you. Yes, 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 creepy, I guess. But she was only 19 years old when she died, and it likely meant something completely different to her family who loved her and missed her when they buried her. They probably found it to be sentimental and meaningful, not creepy and vampire-like. So how did poor Nellie get this reputation for being a vampire? Well, it just goes to show you how quickly word can spread and grow, because apparently this all started when a local high school teacher mentioned to their students that there was a vampire buried in the local cemetery. They likely meant Mercy Brown. Unfortunately, Nellie's grave has been a target for those with a morbid curiosity. And while Nellie was never a vampire and should never have been dubbed a vampire, it is true that she could be an angry spirit, if you believe in those sort of things. People flock to her grave. There may have been many reported sightings and experiences with Nellie's ghost. In one account I found online, it stated a woman named Marlene would visit the cemetery often to do something called grave rubbings, which I had never heard of before. But apparently it's where you take a paper and you hold it against the tombstone. Then you take charcoal and lightly shade over it so that the wording is transferred onto the paper. You know, much like we do when we were kids back in school. It's a pretty interesting idea. Anyway, she was there to do grave rubbing, and when she attempted to do this to Nellie's tombstone, her paper was ruined by mysterious moisture spots, even though the stone was completely dry. Then, when she attempted to take photos of the tombstone, they all came out reversed, even though every other photo she had taken that evening came out completely fine. This woman, Marlene, would later return to the cemetery with her husband, and things would be kicked up a few notches. The husband reported hearing a female voice say very distinctly, I am perfectly pleasant. Then, red scratches appeared on the husband's face. On a third occasion back to the cemetery, because clearly Marlene couldn't get enough of Nellie the ghost, she encountered a young woman in the cemetery who said she was with a local historical society. The pair walked around and stopped in front of Nellie's grave. Marlene asked her if she thought that Nellie was really a vampire, and the woman said it was silly and began repeating the phrase, Nellie is not a vampire. Nellie is not a vampire. Marlene was caught off guard and terrified. She ran back to her car to get away from this crazy lady, but when she looked back, the woman was gone. Marlene believed that this woman was really Nellie's spirit, hanging out in the cemetery, ready to clear her name as definitely not a vampire. Moving forward, one of the earliest reported cases of vampirism in New England was in 1790 when a young woman by the name of Rachel Harris died of tuberculosis. Before her death, Rachel was described as young, vibrant, and very beautiful, which was a stark contrast to the state she was in before she passed. After only a year of marriage, 
Rachel died from consumption. Her darling husband, Captain Isaac Burton, decided to move on after her death and marry her stepsister, Hulda, who was also described as very beautiful only a year after Rachel's passing. However, it wasn't long before Hulda also got sick and was on her deathbed. Clearly, she couldn't have caught it from Rachel, who had long been dead, but friends of the couple were able to convince Captain Isaac that it must be his deceased bride Rachel consuming the life of her sister from beyond the grave. So, three years after his first wife had been buried, the captain agreed to dig Rachel up, removing the liver, heart, and lungs, and burning them to ash. It was reported that between 500 and 1,000 people came out to witness the burning in February 1793, which is a lot of people considering Manchester's population at the time was only 1,300. So this would have been a big event. Of course, the ash was then used to make a medicine for Hulda in hopes that it would cure her. Unfortunately, as was the case of Edwin Brown, she died anyway. Instead of admitting that maybe this wasn't the right way to cure tuberculosis, it was decided that Rachel likely wasn't a vampire after all. Instead, she was probably a witch, and that's why the ritual didn't work. Now, this last story of vampirism that I'm going to tell you about tonight is an interesting one. It brings in a new element to how this whole idea of the dead sucking the life out of their loved ones works. The Spalding family was, again, completely ravaged by consumption. In 1790, the family had lost 6 out of 11 adult children to consumption. The family had all been buried together in a row, and so it was believed that there was an evil vine or root that connected each coffin to each other. If this root were allowed to reach the coffin of the last victim, then another family member would become ill and die. So, when yet another daughter of the Spalding family became sick, the body of the most recently deceased child was dug up and the vital organs removed and burned. When Spalding's son Reuben was buried in 1794, his grave was set apart from those of his other family members, trying to break the chain. The idea here being that the vine or root would not be able to reach his coffin, and so no one else in the family would be at risk of being afflicted by this evil root. By all accounts that I've read about the Spalding family, more children would fall ill to consumption and pass away. And while I think we can agree that it likely had nothing to do with the evil vine, it's still a very intriguing story. So what was with all of these stories of vampirism? Why vampires? Well, if you look at the symptoms of tuberculosis, it's not too difficult to see why some may have had this belief. The individual becomes really pale and incredibly weak, they lose a ton of weight, and they cough up blood. At the time, no one knew what it was, what caused it, or how to prevent someone from getting it. People likely felt powerless as they couldn't possibly understand the science behind this bacterial disease. By giving it this sort of spooky origin story, something otherworldly, they could also invent a way to cure it i.e. by burning the organs and consuming the ash. This would have made people feel like they had some sort of control over what was happening to them, 
even if the solution was far-fetched and unlikely. And the concept is really nothing new. These ideas, they've been around for centuries. Some populations consume blood or body parts of others in order to gain their life or strength or to maintain youth. To most of us, blood literally means life. So if it's believed that these dead bodies still have blood in their veins or in their hearts, you can see why some might perceive them to be quote-unquote undead. And without any scientific knowledge to shed some light on this bacterial disease, it's just easier to blame it on vampires who've been around for thousands of years. Either way, the story of vampires in New England is a fascinating one. And if you're interested in diving further into this, I highly recommend checking out the book A History of Vampires in New England by Thomas D'Agostino. He provides a really thorough historical view of documented cases where families would undergo these rituals in hopes of saving the remainder of their living family members. It's a great read, especially for you history buffs, or if you just really dig mythical creatures and rituals. That's it for me tonight. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper, or I'm on YouTube, Nikki Young, Serial Napper, and that's all one word. And if you're watching on YouTube, I'd love if you could give me a thumbs up and subscribe. If you'd like to become a Patreon and unlock some badass bonuses, including merch discounts and a monthly Zoom chat with me, visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper. Until next time, sleep tight. And don't look under your bed. Bye. Thank you.